Hello and thank you for squawking with us today. As always, I am Andrew Biggers, your host, and with me to debut his new segment, the highly anticipated Ruger Report, is none other than Ruger Stocking. Ruger, thank you for being here. Yeah, finally, full-time squawker. Part of the family. Part of the family. Part of the crew. <laughs> Part of Part the crew. Part of the crew, mainly. Part of the ship. Are you Are you excited? Uh, I'm, I'm very excited. It'll give me a routine and something to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you've talked about how this experience is somewhat therapeutic. In it a sense. is. It is. It's, it's like a conversation, but knowing people listen adds a twist on it that I think, I think it's healthy. It is. Yeah. It's kind of like, like it's, I feel like it's great public speaking practice. It is very good public speaking practice. Um, and also, yeah, a shout out to our small, but hopefully growing base of followers in Africa. Yeah, we, we, we apparently got a lot of traction in Africa um, from our Africa episode, so yeah. made the rounds. Yeah, well, I hope this one makes the rounds. <laughs> uh, it's been a busy week, a lot of, lots have been going on, so uh, I feel like this will get some good traction. But, um, well, look, I mean, where do you want to begin? Should we just talk Corona? Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk Corona. I feel like you've been following closer, so you, so you give us a breakdown of how, how, how it went. Sure. So it's gone. I feel like it took me longer than it should have to get the basic raw data of, you know, those infected, those who have died. But then I thought to myself, well, it's continually growing, right? And not only that, but it's on a world scale. So uh, yesterday when I wrote the numbers down... The cases worldwide were estimated to have been 92,800. Today they are now 97,942. So that's a pretty significant rise. The total amount of deaths worldwide, worldwide excuse me, is 3,354. 53,600 have actually recovered from this. Oh. So Johns Hopkins released that stat today, which is nothing short of encouraging. Uh, but most are from mainland China, about uh, 78% are from mainland China. Uh, in the United States, there are over 120 cases. That was 109 yesterday, but 11 new cases just kind of showed up in New York today. And as a result of 1,000 people are now currently quarantined from Manhattan through the Queens all the way to the Bronx, which is just crazy. This is straight, this is like Hollywood stuff. Um, but there are 120 cases in the United States across 15 states. There have been 11 total deaths. There are two cases in Arizona, 36 cases in California, including one death, three in Florida, two in Georgia, four in Illinois, two in Massachusetts, two in New Hampshire, one in New Jersey, 22 in New York, as I said, one in North Carolina, three in Oregon, two in Rhode Island, and 39 including 10 fatalities in Washington state. Uh, apparently there was uh, the Facebook office in Seattle that had a worker contrived the virus and they shut down the entire office. Uh, it's still closed down. Uh, but, and then Wisconsin and Texas, both with only one reported case. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems extremely good in terms of uh recovery rate and mortality rate, right? Like, am I, am I wrong to no. think it's 
that that sounds very good? No, I think that the United States is in a pretty good position. However, it's no doubt it's spreading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read an article in Scientific American. Let me just pull that up real quick. Uh, that talks about the most su- susceptible groups of people. Uh, the majority of cases have been found within elderly people. I, I, I heard that. I wondered if that was a fact or just something to heard in passing. But well, yeah, and normally when you have a case like this or any kind of virus, the very young and the very old are most susceptible, but mm. the in- infants as well as uh, just people ranging from 0 to 19 have the lowest amount of recorded cases. So it apparently it's not really affecting adolescents to teens. So my question is, if we're talking worldwide, we're looking at 90,000 people, right? Uh, What what was the mortality rate, roughly-ish? I I think the WHO announced it. it, It's either 2.3 or 3.2. I think it's 3.2. Okay, so why are we seeing, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but like I'm just wondering, surface level, why the biggest stock exchange in the world, you know, is plummeting thousands of points when we're literally talking about 0.0001% of the world population yeah. with only a mortality rate of two. You know what I'm saying? It seems it seems not... It seems drastic. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the, the market is reacting drastically. And so I wonder how much of it is... China can't do stuff like economically or it's artificial in the sense that, you know, all the stock traders were like, oh, Corona. It's just kind of fear. Yeah. And and, I mean, I don't know. It's it's always hard to tell those things. I'm by no means an economist. You know, I read an article (laughs) or just a headline from the Wall Street Journal that says the Dow fell. And I know that's bad. (laughs) And that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge of economics. But I do think it is the first one. I do think that China, since they're experiencing definitely the worst of what could be expected and what has been recorded of this, I'm imagining that it has already and will continue to halt probably production and manufacturing as well as exporting as many places have, you know, banned flying to China uh, and even South Korea. But I, I don't know. I mean, is that, do you think that's likely or do you think it is more speculative? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we know the market responds to artificial stuff all the time. Like, I mean, the night of the presidential election always, always drops and then always recovers, right? Which is clearly just people, unknown factors, you know, and people reacting. But, um. Did the, I'm sorry, did the market rise when Trump got elected? So it, um, a little bit, the the but every election I ever the market goes down and then corrects itself back to normal. I mean, you didn't really see the huge growth later on. You saw a little bit, which was, um, I think people taking into account his plans and stuff. You know, because once someone wins, their plans become more relevant. Um, but if, if if we could change a little bit, I have a question for you. I've heard, and I don't know how I feel about it. I've heard some people say that they're like, thank goodness Corona started in China because as a communist country, you know, they can willy-nilly quarantine. You know, they don't have to worry about personal rights to right. the extent where if it started in America, 
you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know, but I assume the quarantine process has some legal yeah. grounding. I mean, I can't see it just being a... I'm pretty sure martial law has to be in place for cities to actually be quarantined because you got to have a military mm-hmm. presence there, obviously. But yeah, I mean, that is, that's a fair point. China definitely can just override what yeah. you know, the safeguards and policy that we have set in place here and even in Europe. But the flip side is no one knows for sure. Like, I've heard some, not reports, but people that are just like, how do we know China's even telling the truth? Well, right? Like, what if the rates are way higher? Well, so that's another, there's another article in Scientific American that talks about the actual spread rate as well as number of infected still being largely up in the air. Yeah. Because, I mean, how are you going to calculate an entire world's population that could or could not be contagious mm-hmm. or, you know, bearing this virus that has a 28-day incubation period with little to no symptoms showing until after that. It's very difficult. And, I mean, it, it's it's straight out of contagion. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, but I think a lot of people in the United States, especially from the news I've read and just from tweets, people are very concerned with Trump's cavalier attitude towards it because he was doing a rally and I can't remember where it was but it was last week or the week prior it was whenever the first death happened oh that was California that was mm-hmm. just last week I think um, the first death happened and he was talking about hoaxes and he was talking about the Democrats impeachment hoax and uh, the Russia hoax and then he said something about, and now, I mean, you, I won't even, I don't even need to say it. You know what the latest hoax is. And he said something like, I better wash my hands or, you know, that's uh. the tweets I saw. So a lot of people are upset about that. And then when he got questioned about it at a press conference, I think he said something along the lines of, no, I, I was just talking about their actions as being the hoax. Not that the, what's happening here is a hoax, but, and then he, for, like, he expanded on that and said that a lot of the, nation a lot of the world is safe to travel to and to fly to but i mean as we know is that who advice because i think that's really unethical if like he blatantly said something you know if if the president's like yeah you can travel wherever but then say the world health organization is explicitly saying you should not you think you should follow the advice of the yeah i think that's actually like you know, I'm not, like, illegal or anything, but I think that's a big ethical like, no-no, right? Absolutely. Because, I mean, well, kind of the, the way bo- to the office type thing. Yeah, and the bottom line is he doesn't know. Yeah. Exactly. I, I don't know. You don't know. Like, there's so much uncertainty surrounding this whole epidemic, um, which, which the German health minister said yesterday, this is a global pandemic, hmm. and that's causing a lot of concern in Germany. But... Uh, I mean, obviously, he, I don't know if this was a PR move. I think I'm, ima- I'm imagining his administ- administration told him that, look, you got to take this a little bit more seriously. It's spreading throughout the nation, let alone all around the world. Um, so I think that's largely why he, because he, the Democrats originally approached him for a large spending proposal. They, they gave him a proposal of what they need, what the country needs to fight corona. And he declined it, and he said, you'll, you'll get $2.5 billion. And then, you know, obviously, that went to the Senate, and the Senate approved the corona spending bill, which I think is $8 billion. But, I, and I don't know if, you know, his 
I, I imagine it, like I said, I imagine his administration kind of yeah. helped him out and explained the gravity of it. But I mean, a lot of countries are suffering with it. I had no idea that Iran had been hit as hard as it was. Yeah, Iran was hit hard. I mean, I'm pretty sure their health minister died of corona, yeah. if, if I recall. Well, um, in I India today just closed uh, all schools in New Delhi. And oh, wow. That's like two million kids. So it's getting serious, but the best advice that I've seen is from the WHO, and that's to, can you guess what it is? Wash your hands. Frequently wash your hands, <laughs> right on the dot. Um, I think it's weird how it's like avoiding Africa for the most part. I know. I'm actually very surprised at that, because when you think places most susceptible, I'm sorry, but the reality is, you know, Africa is still very susceptible. And if you look at a map, excluding like some North African countries and Nigeria, it's there are no cases in Africa. I know. And it's so weird that in fairly obscure places, I mean, I get the proximity to China, but... Well, like Iceland. Asia. Well, Iceland, Iceland. Uh, but the Philippines, they have one reported case. Australia even. How did how does New Australia Zealand. have have reported cases? I don't know. But I just thought that was interesting looking at the map. If you had to speculate, do you imagine that we will still be talking about or even dealing with this a year from now? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not educated at all, so this is me just literally just guessing. Yeah, but That's what the show is. <laughs> um, the... I don't know. I've just lived through a couple of these. I mean, you remember swine Sa flu, yeah, Ebola, SARS, swine flu, like, Zika. You know, the, yeah, these these have made the rounds before. Um, but this one feels a little bit more severe. Well, pe uh, people say that, and it is severe in terms of spread. But I keep coming back to like total people and mortality rate. It's really low, like. The mortality rate is a big one. Yeah, like the the vast majority of people are recovering. So, I don't know. It's just hard for me to get worried about a disease that overall percentage of the world is still so low. And you have very good odds, assuming you're not a child or elderly person of surviving. Right. And I mean, I guess my main concern doesn't even lie within the possibility of get, contriving it and then, you know, dying but more so just mistakes made along the way as the mm. as it spreads. I, I mean, I, just from yesterday to today, that's pretty exponential. Yeah, and I'm interested, I think the more consequential thing is not the virus itself, but since we do live in such a globalized world, what does it mean for the, a world where if a virus starts in China, the world is doomed? Do you know what I'm saying? Where it's no longer, oh, well, if everyone just minds their own business, everything will be okay, right? Yeah. So, like, if China does something or fails to do something, we're talking about, like, a global pandemic, right? So what's the world supposed to do with that? And I don't know, but I think that's actually the, the more consequential question where it's kind of been brought to light where, I mean, you saw how fast it traveled. I mean, the... Um, you know, if you tried to explain to someone a hundred years ago how fast diseases could travel, it'd blow their mind. Right. Because the world's so globalized. So I think that's the bigger issue, actually, is 
did China fail to do something, and what does this mean going forward for a world where we're so interconnected? Well, I think one of the main results of this, when it's all said and done, and I think you're already seeing it start now, is that China is kind of being expected to shape up. Yeah. To, you know, change, because obviously the firewall on their internet could have largely prevented, I don't know how much of the spread it could have prevented, but I would venture to say maybe even half, if not more. Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is true, but so imagine this scenario, we know supply chains are moving, right? Trying to compensate. So it's like China can't do stuff to the scale. So what does it mean if we, like the, when I say we, I mean the world can demonstrate, um, I guess China's obsoleteness, if that makes sense, right? So I mean, say there's this virus and all the global supply chains correct for it around China. What does that mean if the markets can correct for that? Because that's essentially demonstrating actually we don't need China. Because it's always been just this accepted thing. Oh, well, we have to have Chinese uh, exports because they're so cheap because they pay their laborers so little. But, right, the virus is shutting down, you know, vast swaths of China. So then now these supply chains are correcting around China. And so what does that mean? That maybe the dependency isn't as... Exactly. You know, large as we, as we thought it was. Yeah, yeah that, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, because if the markets are able to correct around that, then China's lost its, literally, its only bargaining chip. Well, except for, the, I mean, the deficit, that's... Yeah, I mean, I mean, that to an extent, but I mean, China with every country as a bargaining chip has, but you use our stuff. You yeah. know, I mean, if you go to Australia, everything says made in China, Europe, you know, everywhere always says made in China. So what does that mean if we can demonstrate that we don't have to have that? And it's not, you know, this severe economic collapse. Yeah, it's kind of crazy just to watch the U.S. markets, let alone the world economic market, kind of try and reshape itself. Hmm. But I, I completely agree with you. If it does reshape, if it does come back, then maybe that would encourage production within yeah, countries that are Yeah, because, I mean, everyone's always... Now tolerated China having human rights abuses just because they're so big economically, right? I mean, if they if any country did the thing they did to the Uyghurs and killed a bunch of their own citizens and sent them to camps and stuff, we would get involved, right? Yeah. Everyone would get involved. But it's literally the world just values cheap Chinese goods so much that they let China do it. It's so unethical. Oh, yeah. It's 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 the worst. And it's this weird time where, you know, I mean, I don't know how many Uyghurs were killed or Uyghurs, but um, I think it was, it might have been, like, millions. We're talking, it was a genocide, and nobody cares. Yeah, I, I definitely think this will result in more accountability from China. And, again, just shaping up, you know, straightening up and flying right. Because, I mean, obviously, that not, not just on, in terms of human rights violations, but, I mean, let me pose a question. Do you think that keeping access from the Internet now in the age of information constitutes a human right violation? Oh, so that's a tricky question. Um, it kind of centers around what philosophically is a right, and is it a yeah. positive right or a negative right? Like, do you have the right to something or from something? Um, and I, 
I don't think anyone has fully figured out. The Netherlands has done a lot of good work on what digital rights mean. And they're, from what I understand, their formulations are essentially the internet is an extension of yourself. It's so a tool. we, yeah, so we need to import all those rights in, you know, like like privacy, harm, freedom of expression. Yeah, freedom of expression, all the, all this stuff. That's kind of their formulation. But in terms of the internet as a whole, it's kind of like water to the point now where it's almost a public utility. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's this thing that is decentralized, it's everywhere, used by the majority. But the but the government still has to get it to you. Or the private sector can. But there's a difference between, like, what we're really talking about is, like, Chinese people can use the Internet, right? It's just a regulated Internet. But, I mean, our government does that, too. Like, I can't Google, like, black ops operations in Afghanistan, you know? Right. So, I mean, every country hides things. Um, but I think the the greater kind of concern that's for sure unethical is that that China lies about its history and it like blocks history from being looked at by Chinese people. Well, I mean, not to mention just talk about fake news, the pieces of propaganda posted online as legitimate news and also just kind of denigrating the United States, what's going on over there. It's all, you know, it's it's making a mockery of itself and because if you look up Mao Zedong, they don't even talk about, you know, the Great Leap Forward or anything. Really? Yeah. Like, so, like, if you talk to people who have been to China, they love him. Posters of him everywhere, he's great. Like, he made China great. The Great Leap Forward. All that jazz. And there's just no conception of this guy was a murderer. Wasn't there a period where Germany did or tried something similar with Hitler? They did, not to the extent to which China's done it, but there was kind of a denial and dismissal of, I guess, the full extent of Hitler's actions and, you know, genocide. I think I, think I heard that. They've definitely changed. Most, yeah. um, but I, I do think that that was the case for a little bit. I'm not sure, though. But I think I did hear that. Well, just to finish off the, uh, the stats... The deaths in China, or excuse me, outside of China, um, Italy is now at 107, which is exceeding Iran. And that's mm. also crazy. That is weird. Iran is at 92. South Korea is at 35. Three of those were just reported yesterday. Japan is at 12, which is shockingly low. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, France is at 4. Hong Kong, 2. I mean, thank... Thank God it's not breaking out, running rampant in Hong Kong yet, because that'll be that'll be bad for Asia as a whole uh, when that if and when that day comes. Spain is at two, Iraq is at two, Taiwan is at one, Australia is at two, Thailand uh, is at one, and the Philippines are at one. Hmm. So there you go. But that's that's the state of things. Yeah, I, I I am really interested to see where this goes, and I mean just the fact that like the what's his name New York Mayor De Blasio De Blasio, mm-hmm. he talked about this being seriously under or overlooked as a legitimate issue, and on the on a global scale, and I mean like you I I wish I wish we had a visual component because we could show 
I'll post it on Twitter, but the visual element or the visual that he released for the quarantine in that section of New York City is, I mean, it's pretty shocking. And I mean, it just shows you how they're able to actually do it, how it still could possibly spread and what walls they're putting up to try and prevent that. But now you've got me interested in just the legality of quarantining. Right. And it's kind of overlooked because anytime there is an outbreak, it it always happens. Right. right? Um, But the legality, from what I understand, has never been flushed out, right? Yeah. Well, because the United States has never had... I mean, I, I would you say that right now the state of coronavirus in the United States is kind of an equivalent to... I feel like it's more than swine flu's presence in the United States. More than Ebola. De- definitely more yeah. than Ebola. But... I don't know. I feel like it's not much more severe currently Yeah, I than don't, any of the past health scares. Yeah, I, I don't think it's... Which is why I'm interested that, I mean, New York City quarantined, right? Because... A thousand people. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like the people in charge aren't doing a good job of demonstrating the realities of it and so the media is just kind of well you know like it seems like this kind of information should not be relayed to us through the news this should be like public declarations and stuff like that who cdc yeah i should be seeing who press conferences on the time like stuff like that because it is so important and stuff like that so I i think that's my only thing is Seems we're getting all this secondhand where I want to know what the WHO says and the government needs to be helping disseminate what they say. Yeah. Or the CDC, stuff like that. No, absolutely. Because, I mean, this is the kind of story that the media thrives on. And yeah, and this is why we have a CDC and stuff. Like, we have institutions for this, so I don't get why they're not the ones, you know... Now, the, us this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> if and if so, what is the extent of government funding for CDC and WHO? They're not government well, entities, yeah, right? Yeah, the World Horth- Health World <laughs> Force Organization. <laughs> the World Health Organization. I actually believe it's like a subset thing in the UN. It's more of a global think tank deal. Yeah. Um, but the CDC, we do fund, and they mostly do research, kind of like the Congressional Budget Office. So the Congressional Budget Office, they just sit around and publish studies about the costs of different things. And if you change this, how much would it cost? And they do analytics, and they do excellent work. 10 out of 10 recommend, and it's free. It's all free stuff because it's government funded. CDC is very much the same. Like, the CDC's main function is study and data analytics, you know, because our private sector does a lot. So it's not like the CDC is generating cures. The CDC is more like, uh, why why is this year's strain of flu different and what to do about it type stuff. But, I mean, they're... Which is invaluable, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and they're funded, and so they should be sending out declarations and stuff. I will say that uh, I recently followed both on my private and the Squawk Twitter 
the WHO page and the CDC page. And the CDC page is brimming with quality content. Good, uh, good, yeah, good, good. They do good work. They do. Uh, statistics of infected and, you know, so on and so forth, as well as videos actually interviewing the doctors, researching this and working in the field with it. So that's good. But I think it's fair to say that Squawk's position on <laughs> coronavirus is cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I would, I would, I would also say cautiously optimistic. Well, Ruger, wrote a fork in the road here, and I'm going to let you decide. Would you like to go into election 2020, which includes, you know, just going over Super Tuesday, talk about, you know, squawculation, if you will, <laughs> squawculation. speculation. It's a new term. We're working on it. Um, for, you know, the outcome, mm -hmm. as well as the Democratic nominee and Warren's withdrawal today, which is, that's actually kind of been dominating the news more so than Corona, which is, I think, a bit ridiculous. But you could do that, or, you know, you could just go right into your Ruger report. No, let, let's, let's keep doing news. Let's keep all the news together. I'm, I'm, I'm digging the news. I love it. Um, well, before we get into that, uh, on a lighter note, an eight-year-old boy uh, from Canada specifically Toronto, won $200 of medical marijuana at a youth hockey tournament. I'm telling you, dude, Canada. Something else. That's 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 quite a headline, too. <laughs> uh, but Keith Riedel of British Columbia told Toronto CTV News that his grandson, who plays in a youth hockey league, had entered a raffle ticket to win a prize. The Dawson Creek Minor Hockey Association issued a statement explaining that the prize was meant for adults and never where the children were. So, but still, you know, yeah. there's an eight-year-old kid who has to go up and fill out whatever information needs to be filled out to get a raffle ticket. I don't know why they didn't turn him down. I know. That maybe maybe he was wearing uh, maybe he was on stilts and wearing a wig and mustache. <laughs> Probably. Well, weed, weed is making the rounds. I mean, I, I still don't know for sure uh, how Oklahoma changed their laws, but I, all I know is at work, I see high people all the time. <laughs> oh, you see... All I, the time. And there was a clear uptick when Oklahoma changed its laws, you know? Because and, it was just a decriminalization. I think so. Yeah. I, th I think that is that is my understanding. But yeah. tons... Tons and tons. Oh, all over. All over. Anytime I'm out with my friends in Dallas or even OKC, you can't walk anywhere without mm -hmm. seeing somebody's eyes just very red, super mm -hmm. glazed. And uh, I don't know. Hungry. <laughs> Let's talk about the marijuana issue. Do you think that legally or federally, excuse me, uh, it should be made legal or do you think it should still be left up to the states? It should. I mean, my legal understanding is it should still left to the states but I generally think I would like it even better if it was below that so cities could decide I mean they do that with liquor right yeah so some cities decide hey we're and, I, and this is all democratic where they'll be like well we're religious we want to be a dry county we don't want to sell liquor yeah and I'm all about that because the community is deciding so um, but I'm pretty sure legally it's a state's issue. So if, let's just say Texas mm -hmm. legalized marijuana, if the mayor of Dallas said, well, we're not going to have any of that here, we're still going to maintain and abide by the previous law, 
and it's a legal status. Could he do that? They can't do that, but what they could say is you're not allowed to sell marijuana in Dallas County. Hmm. Um, That's how they get around, you know, like liquor. You can have liquor in Texas, but you can't sell liquor in some counties. Right. Depending if it's dry or wet county. So I'm pretty sure it's the same. And um, I feel like we, at least I should give a disclaimer that I don't think anyone should ever go to prison for marijuana. So, like, when we say I'm okay with the state deciding not to legalize marijuana, I still can also be like, well, you shouldn't send people to prison. I mean, that you, is, that you should at worst have a hefty fine. Sure. You know, it should be like a speeding ticket. And it should and be uh, in correlation with the amount that you've totally, been selling or that you're in possession of at the time. Yeah. And I think we do a really poor job of that now yeah the idea you can like lock a guy in a cage though for a joint for like years well nevada used to be the absolute worst place to get caught with that's ironic i know you can have you can you know go out and 2 a.m or 4 a.m and buy a bottle of whiskey and you can go into the casino and gamble but you you can even hire a prostitute but you can't smoke marijuana yeah and i really uh, that's I still don't understand what the logic behind that was. But, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but I think that's the cool thing about America, too, is... Um, so Utah, you know, it's like 50% Mormon. They can get together and be like, we don't want weed. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... Well, and I mean, you, there are still people in prison with life sentences for well, yeah, marijuana crimes. Something needs to be done about that. I'm not sure how... Um, retroactive laws and stuff work in my ideal world if we legalized weed we'd let everyone out right <laughs> who is associated with but that that's, stuff it's, i feel like that's idealistic yeah but uh, i have no idea that. i know louisiana because they still use like the this is kind of cool the like neo uh, like napoleonic laws um the laws are always situational. So you can never be, um, as soon as the laws change, the entire system changes, if that makes sense. So so it is the what I just described, where when Louisiana changes the laws, all retroactive laws are changed, or it's vice versa, I can't remember. But Louisiana law is kind of unique like that. According to the Washington Post, there are currently 2.3 million people behind bars. That is ridiculous. For marijuana crimes. Ridiculous. Uh, so actually, let me rephrase that. That was a quote from Beto O'Rourke. Um, the actual amount is 2.1 million. <laughs> Beto. <laughs> From the job. Uh, oh, that's that's wild. Yeah, something should be done about that. And that is uh, an aspect of the Sanders campaign that I am yeah, I, I am in support of, one of few. Because, I mean, there, people forget there is a middle ground between, like, locking millions of people up for joints and everyone ever is a pothead and there's weed everywhere, you know? Right. And I think that a lot of the stigmas that really started off with, you know, William Randolph Hearst and the mm-hmm. hemp war. Uh, but isn't it, and isn't it later, you know, reefer madness. Those are definitely dying yeah. down, but it, 
I think now you're getting to a, a maybe equally dangerous area in which it's so widely celebrated and mm-hmm. encouraged and is made out to be the answer to so many problems. Yeah, and um, but my thing is it's so much better, like, from a consequences perspective than alcohol. Like, Almost definitely. Like, by a numerous metrics. So... That's kind of my whole thing is if you really cared about people, you would be in that framework of people who don't like weed. You should also not be for alcohol. Yeah. Because alcohol kills way more people. Oh, and I mean, just destroys many more lives. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about actually killing brain cells. Mm -hmm. One thing that I do, I do kind of wrestle with in the marijuana debate is that the, you know, pro- legalization side and I don't even think it's meant to be like this but there is so much misinformation kind of thrown out by that side of the issue like that it can prevent cancer and yeah and I mean there have been I think with certain types of cancer smoking marijuana acts as like a preventative measure for certain types of cancer but I, I don't know the full extent. Yeah. I just I think that there is a lot of misinformation like that. They do. And what gets me is the argument it makes you feel good is good enough. Like, that's a good argument. Like, especially when you're talking about sick people, you know, um, what's the illness where you shake? I know it helps. Parkinson's. Yeah, it helps people with Parkinson's chill out. It helps people sleep who have insomnia. Like, there's plenty of good arguments where you don't have to because you know you get the extremes of where oh it cures all this stuff and there's not a single harmful side effect what's well, like what no clearly there is you know yeah. well the, yeah inhaling I, smoke into your lungs well not just that there was a recent neurological study that i saw and pbc did a big like hour long thing about it and it was talking about if you're an adolescent uh, and you're smoking marijuana it can Miss, drastically miss alter, yeah, the development of the brain. And, you know, sometimes, like, I mean, the drastic beliefs on the opposing side for legalization are that, you know, it can cause schizophrenia or it can mm. do a bunch of other, uh, you know, or lead to a bunch of harmful other things. Like, it's a gateway drug. It, it definitely is. Like, I'm, yeah. I, I think anything can be a gateway drug. It just depends on the individual. Uh, yeah, I mean, booze can be. I would argue booze is the most gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's like I with booze, it, it's not even necessarily opening a gate to anything else. You're just going to keep mm-hmm. keep boozing and cruising. Boozing and cruising. Until you uh, wind up with a bruising. <laughs> That's enough rhyming for today. But, um, all right, uh, getting away from the, uh, the reefer talk, let's talk decision 2020. It's a big one. It is. It is. So we saw Elizabeth Warren dropped out today. Do you think that Elizabeth Warren kept votes or delegates out of the, I think, nine or nine? Did she get nine on Super Tuesday? I think so. I think she got nine on Super Tuesday. Did she keep delegate votes from Bernie Sanders? And moreover, do you think that Warren's support will likely side with Biden or Bernie? I think it's honestly a hybrid, but only because she's she's a flip flopper. So, you know, she's a total flip flopper. <laughs> if you look like a year ago, she was actually just kind of a moderate Democrat. I mean, 
even when she was in uh, Senator of Massachusetts, yeah, she was very, very moderate. So she was kind of your normal. She used to be a Republican, if you go back far enough. No one talks about that, yeah. though. Um, so, you know, I was like, oh, she's moderate. But then I think she was like, well, I want to be the progressive wing. So she just started spouting all the Bernie stuff. But I can't see her campaign being totally people that came for came out for it out of nowhere. So I kind of think it's a hybrid of people who supported her pre when she went all progressive and people who maybe didn't like Bernie, so like a li- like Bernie Light. So I think it's actually a uh, a little bit. But when you're talking about nine delegates, I don't I don't see it as two. Uh, stolen vote, you know. Yeah, Cuomo was making that case on CNN, and I had a hard time understanding where he was going with that. But do you know she's 70? Dang, she looks good for She looks 70. very good for Go 70. Go her. She's yeah, healthy. Seriously. Must be that Native American DNA. <laughs> um, I think that was a huge detriment to her campaign. Well, I, no, I, cons- Conspiracy theory, no one talks about it. I don't think it was a detriment. I mean, no one talks about it. This entire election cycle, no one has brought it up. No one even asked her about it in the debates, did they? Yeah, so, yeah. They did? I distinctly remember one. Uh, I mean, and she just gives a very political, like, traditional political spin kind of answer. Could you imagine, though, if a GOP person had lied about their race, though? And then used it to get stuff, like, into college, into the bar, all that stuff. Well, and no one also talks about the story that she has told multiple times about being fired from her first job out of college. She has as tons a, of lies. Working as a special ed teacher. Yeah. And she shows up one day, and she, you know, she had found out a couple of weeks before that she was pregnant, and then she's just starting to show. And the story is that she walks into the principal's office, and the principal says... Uh, sorry, you know, you can't work here anymore. That's and it. faculty members that have been interviewed as well as that principal said that the purpose of the meeting was to talk about, a, you know, a potential window of time that you might need or need to go on maternity leave. Yeah, and, I mean, she lies about a bunch of stuff. Like she said, her kids go to public school and they go to private school. Yeah. All politicians lie, though. Yeah. But yeah. she she's definitely a... Hillary Bernie hybrid, I think. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. But I mean, the, the, like titles like this are the ones that that get me. Um, it like on Huffington Post it says the baggage persisted, spoiled by sexism, and the thesis of the article is um, <laughs> because the DNC is so sexist. <laughs> <laughs> that Elizabeth Warren's not the nominee. Yeah, and that's why a woman was nominee <laughs> in 2016, right? Because they're so sexist. Uh, plus, if I mean, if the DNC's deemed sexist, well, is there hope for any of us? No, seriously, <laughs> like, we must all just be awful, awful people. Yeah, r- raging with prejudice. Uh, I read this and I thought it was interesting. A morning consult poll found. Sanders and Biden would benefit roughly equally from Warren's yeah. Yeah, departure. Uh, but the poll says 43% of Warren supporters choose Sanders as their second choice compared with the 36 who say Biden is their second go-to. Mm-hmm. Still uh, a lot of overlap. Yeah, most definitely. But, yeah, I, either way, it's it's messy. 
For those who don't know, I, if you don't mind, I would just like to share some of the details about the Pocahontas story. <laughs> so it was an attempt to get ahead of attacks she faced in the presidential race for claiming Native American heritage. Um, you know, re- many Republicans followed President Trump, relentlessly mocking her by calling her Elizabeth Pocahontas Warren. She, uh, the Trump actually promised a million dollar donation to a charity of Warren's choice if she took and uh, made public a DNA test, uh, the results of her DNA test. And this obviously angered more than anyone Native American groups, which included the Cherokee Nation that actually publicly slammed her decision to use DNA <laughs> testing to try and claim that she's got any Native American heritage what to, be, uh, you know, to begin with. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, by and large, I do think that was, I think despite it not being covered nearly as much as it should have. In the it would have been like Trump would have. Well, I think just, on I think that people that are actually curious enough to look at what the president is saying and look into it for themselves, especially Democrats, that's definitely a moment where they're like, oh, he, wow, he's kind of right. She's kind of kind of foolish for that but yeah so th- there's that warns out hypocrisy abounds now let's just give a quick recap of super tuesday i was correct to a certain degree because i thought biden would come back but i certainly did not think that he would win 10 states let alone be ahead of bernie um and i and i also really thought that warren would do I thought she would do bad, but not as bad as she did. I honestly thought that Biden and Warren would be splitting a lot of the delegates that delegate votes that Bernie did not pick up. Yeah, I mean that's not saying much. But I didn't expect Bloomberg to flop so hard. No, I, what does that? Okay, I mean, there's I've seen a couple articles, but I feel like people are missing the point. What? Why do we continually say elections are bought? Like, you know, we have this view, oh, it's big corporate money, that, that people are buying elections. All these politicians are buying it's elections. the elite, the Zionists. When, when we literally... We literally... This was like a case study of a guy who could not buy an election. Like, he spent more, he spent the most. And, w- I mean, the articles I saw were linking it to the whole Russian thing where we're expected to believe 2016 was stolen... From for a, from a few Facebook ads, and Michael Bloomberg couldn't even get a few delegates with carpet bombing like a, all of America with ads. Yeah, with 175 mil or 150 million dollars spent on online so advertising yeah. alone. So I see it as a as a a dub for the American voter. Absolutely, Honestly, yeah. shows quite a bit of resilience to be like, oh, that's well, who cares about all these ads? Yeah, the democratic process is still. Exactly. It's still alive and well. Exactly. So, I mean, people are still going to go with it, but I would encourage people to be like, wait, maybe, you know, this kind of idea we have of democracy is still going. Right now, on Twitter, um, let me see what's, I just had it pulled up, I'm sorry. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is number one on trending. Number two is thank you, Elizabeth. And number four five is Warren to Biden then number six or number wow number 12 is Warren to Bernie 
Hmm. So maybe that's indicative of where the support will, where her, where her support will go to. Uh, did you happen to see Trump's Twitter exchange with Bloomberg? <laughs> no. Um, I think I heard about it. It was... It, like I, I, I can't. I couldn't tell you the last time that I. And maybe this just shows who I'm following, but I couldn't remember the last time I actually laughed out loud at just kind of the absurdity of it. But also, just it's, it is funny. Uh, his pin tweak right now, tweet not tweak. <laughs> his, uh, his pin tweet says, uh, "Mini Mike, you're easy," because Michael Bloomberg posted a video of. Star Wars, The New Hope, and it's Vader fighting <laughs> Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan <laughs> says, you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could ever imagine. <laughs> and then <laughs> Trump responded with Spaceballs with, uh, I always forget, the bad guy. He's like swinging his lightsaber oh, yeah. or what, whatever, and uh, whatever. I, I, I'll be honest, I've never seen Spaceballs. I'm just going to get that confession out there. <laughs> Um, but Trump is just like it's his head and his char- the character is like holding Bloomberg back <laughs> by the head and it's and, the, and he, the caption is Mini Mike you're easy uh, <laughs> but that wasn't even what made me laugh so hard what made me laugh very hard was let me pull it up I think yesterday or the day before he just went on I think a four or five I think it was five tweet rant oh. about <laughs> Mike Bloomberg being weak and, you know, just couldn't buy the election. Yeah, so two days ago, let me start from the beginning. Man, I did not realize that this guy tweets as much as he does. Yeah, it's a lot. Did he uh, he delete them? No, 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 no. Surely not. Trump doesn't delete tweets. Yeah, that doesn't sound like him. Mini Mike Bloomberg can never recover from his incompetent debate performance. Also, as mayor, he was very bad under pressure. Dash a choker. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. I've got to find these tweets. Elizabeth Pocahontas Warren, other than Mini Mike, was the loser of the night. She didn't even come close to winning her home state of Massachusetts. Well, now she can just sit back with her husband and have a nice cold beer. <laughs> Do you know what that's referencing? Oh, the the video yeah, where she's like Instagram Live, right? <laughs> I think I'll have a beer. Isn't that what she says? And she goes to the fridge. She, she's like, "You want a beer?" And it's just the most awkward. She's like, "It's like you could tell she's never had a beer. It's just the doesn't know how to open it." And the like, 2019 equivalent. To, I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> Still one of the most cringeworthy videos I've ever seen. But think about it. That's Biden. Biden is that times 10. Gaff Central. Oh, I, okay. I, I found it. I'm sorry. It took me so long. Uh, this was yesterday. Uh, Mini Mike Bloomberg just quit the race for president. I could have told him long ago <laughs> that he didn't have what it takes <laughs> and he would have saved himself a billion dollars, the real cost. <laughs> now he will pour money into Sleepy Joe's campaign, <laughs> hoping to save face. It won't work! Exclamation. Uh, Mini Mike Bloomberg will now fire Tim O'Brien and all of the fools and truly dumb people who got him into this mess. All caps. This has been the worst and most embarrassing experience of his life dot 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 and now on to sleepy joe 
and the, I think it's the last one. Oh, nope, two more. Mini Mike. Three months ago, I entered the race for president to defeat Trump in parentheses, and I failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, the final one, pandering mini Mike Bloomberg, along with his wacky friend Tom Steyer, <laughs> have found out the hard way that you can't buy the election. They both wish they had it to do over again. Dang. Could you imagine getting just obliterated on Twitter by Trump? I honestly feel like that's why so many people tweet at him, like, you know, the hate that they do. I mean, a lot of people hate him, obviously, but I feel like people just really want him to respond oh, yeah. to some random citizen. Um, but, yeah, that, that exchange is, is close to being priceless. Um, all right, let's do a little bit of uh, squawculation. Bernie or Biden, who you got for the nominee? Uh, I think Biden. I just, I just feel like the DNC is so corrupt. I, I, I mean, the super delegate system is just so whack to me. It, yeah, it is to me as well. I really don't think that a DNC wants, specifically the DNC's donors, want Bernie to be the nominee. Yeah, I mean, and that's generally... Because, I mean, you're you're starting to see the waking up where people are like, what? The media is not covering Bernie fa- fairly. <laughs> and everyone else is like, wow, wow. Where have you been? And yeah, imagine that. Wow. And so you're seeing a real ideological, like, uh, I can't remember who said it, but if you actually look at their policies, it doesn't make sense that Biden and Bernie are in the same party at all. Could you expand on that? Well, yeah, so, I mean, Biden's way, way, way more to the center. Oh, like, yeah. if you look at his policies. Another thing, I think I think Biden will be the nominee, and I think he'll lose, because name one Joe Biden policy. Uh, I've never met a person who could name a Joe Biden policy. Well, That's the moral of this story. Oh, the corn pot policy. <laughs> yeah, the chain around the yeah. hairy legs. Um, a gang of very bad, bad men, bad and, guys. And why I think Bernie will do very well, but he won't get it, is because of the corruption. But the reason that Bernie and Trump on the other side are so successful is because they have a clear vision. And, like, even if you don't like Trump, you can rattle off a couple of his policies off the top of your head. So then you're already deciding, do you agree with the policies rather than, wait, what's his policies? So, you know, it's already... Exactly. He's dumb. So that's why I think the real reason he beat Hillary Clinton is because people had to ask themselves, well, do I agree with the wall, his trade policy, his kind of like... America first mentality. Yeah, American first mentality. Whereas with Hillary, you didn't have policies. Like, name one Hillary Clinton policy. Well, and the thing is, it definitely wasn't a lack of talking policy but none of them had any character let alone i think real effort to change or reform yeah and the the irony is because trump gets railed as a buffoon and stuff which he does do dumb stuff but genius or a buffoon but he's more ideologically coherent right for sure because i mean he knows what he wants what's this like and the fact that we can't even think what a what a Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden policy is speaks volumes, right? Whereas with Bernie, he's successful because you know. 
the question is, do you agree with socialized health care? Do you agree with all his other policies, right? You know, the wealth tax, all that stuff. Yeah, minimum so wage so when, you ha- when you present the clear vision, you're already starting 10 points like ahead, I guess, in people's mind because they have to reason against your policies, then against you as a candidate, then discern the other candidates' policies, and then discern if they want to vote for them. So, you know, you have, to, you have to disagree your way out of Bernie Sanders and out of Trump. Yeah. Well, I mean, Trump and Bernie are both populists, mm-hmm. so that, that's a big thing. And I do consider them both to be reformers oh, yeah. to a certain degree. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think Biden will definitely be the nominee. And I think that I think Bernie will do well because right now there mm-hmm. are still a remaining. I think there's. Yeah, I think there's 1,276 delegates still, excuse me, there are still 286 delegates still remaining. Mm. And I mean, to secure the nomination, you got to earn 1,991 delegates. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, a Joe, a Joe Biden-Trump debate is going to be... Uh, Trump is going to rail him. But it's going to be brutal. Just because, I mean, a lot of people have said that Trump has pro- most likely has early onset dementia. I don't, I don't think that. I think that's just <laughs> his personality. That's just the way he speaks. But I think you could make a case that it's possible with with Joe. Yeah. Stand up, Chuck. There just there are so many instances, particularly just in this primary of where sentences have not been formed coherently yeah. or at and all. He'll do interviews where he like doesn't know who, who he's interviewing with. Well, and I, I'm still laughing at the, what did he say during, I think it was, it might have been Nevada, the Nevada caucus. I think he said there have been over 150 million deaths yes. from uh, American gun violence yes. since, uh, since Obama, Obama left office. Or it was something crazy <laughs> like that. And the top tweet I saw was Tim Pool quoting it, and he said, uh, did I miss the second Civil War or something? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, and I think Trump is either way just already at an advantage because he just has to watch Bernie try and tear down Biden and Biden try to tear down Bernie, and that and already gets him a good uh, argumentative base right there. It's going to be close because every presidential election is always close, Right. But it's going to be 2016 all over again. That's what, I mean, Bannon, that's what Bannon has been saying. Uh, like, the media is going to rally around Biden. You know, everyone is going to be like, well, Biden's nicer, all that stuff. I will think, though, it'll be closer because Biden is, like, from Pennsylvania. Yeah. And from kind of union states that Trump won. You know, the states flumped. Trump flipped that no one thought could be flipped, but he flipped him, I think, because he was anti-establishment. Absolutely. And Biden is a clear-cut product of the establishment. Exactly. And I mean, already just looking at the states that he won on Super Tuesday, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Maine, Minnesota, and Massachusetts, which is still, Warren Warren was third in Massachusetts, which is crazy Mm -hmm. to me. Um, But yeah, I mean, Trump won. Did Trump win? The he won the majority of those states. Oh yeah, Alabama, I mean, Tennessee, Texas. Well, yeah, the South is irrelevant. Uh, but I mean, to the presidential election. 
No, I understand that. But I mean, just talking about, you know, looking back to where Trump was in this stage in 2016, like you can compare that. And I remember the Associated Press on Super Tuesday projected that Bernie was going to win Texas. And being a Texan, you know, I'm and I was all yeah. Yeah, and you you're you're a Texan as well. I just it's kind of that was concerning. That was definitely a point of concern. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Mainly propagated by the media, but either way, we'll see it. Squawk's uh, prediction: Biden gets the nominee, Trump wins by a thin margin. Uh, I think it's going to be a bigger margin than 2016. I think some states. Really? Uh, yeah, I think some states are going to be. Uh, assuming there's no economic like big shift um or the coronavirus gets significantly worse yeah i think that he'll actually flip maybe a couple states that he barely lost i could see that um separate from squawks prediction because this is clearly this is just mine and my own I really think that Clinton is going to be Joe's running mate. I, d- okay, I, I really don't think I so. I really think so, man. No way are they that stupid. Like, you could not. No, but It's think, literally but like a movie. A, like I know, but that, exactly, man. But that's what people want. It's like, what, what drives people's vote other than just, you know, their oh, gut? My goodness. It's, it's emotion. And the people that showed up to vote for Hillary Clinton just because she would have been the first female president or... She, you know, I mean, people that didn't weren't familiar with her policies, but just hated Trump. This is the moment for revenge. This is how we. This is how we get even. I just can't see it, my dude. I really can't. I mean, I hope you're right, man. Most like, VB candidates are these obscure people that like secure the dub for a state that might be hard to get. Well, you know, what I mean, think about Tim Kaine. No one knew who Tim. Ka- forgot about Tim. Yeah, Kane. Tim Kaine came out of Paul nowhere. Paul Ryan in uh, yeah, Bobby's campaign. Exactly. So most of the time, it's to secure a state that you otherwise would not get. Yeah. And Hillary would secure. She's from New York now, so she would secure New York, which is already in the bag, I guess. If they do, that is they are the most like lack of self-reflection people. You know, like narcissistic. I can imagine, like the fact that you would just keep persisting you know a failed candidate yeah and not even be like oh well maybe we should try and please the left wing a progressive vp maybe somewhere in between bernie and biden that would clearly be like an olive branch that makes the most sense yeah beto honestly he's from texas he's progressive that that would be that checks a bunch of boxes that he'd be an excellent vp yeah i didn't even consider that um last point about the election and then I would love to get to the Reaver Report. What do you imagine, or who do you imagine will be Bernie's running mate choice? Can't be AOC, which a lot of people were hoping, but that's unconstitutional. Uh, I think it'd be a woman. You think it could be Warren? No, I think we're just bounded by we don't know enough people. I think it would be someone obscure, but... I'm still part of the progressive-ish movement. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't think it would be one, though. I think everyone, though, who dropped out and turned real quick, though, is going to get jobs. Like, I mean, I think Pete's going to have a job in the administration, all that jazz. Well, and Amy. And I think Cory Booker, he already, had, he already had a position, 
Well, I forget Booker's background. That was my least favorite candidate. Mm. Just because he tried to channel the Obama effect, and yeah. it just failed massively. Uh, they all are. I mean, every single candidate wants the a redo of, of 08. And it's just not going to happen. And I think that might be indicative of why Biden is in the position he's in, because, oh, he was part of that administration. Mm-hmm. That might correlate to a certain degree, but either way, uh, time will tell. We'll keep you updated. Ruger, let's hear the Ruger report. Okay, so what are we what are we squawking about? The, we are squawking about a book I mentioned in passing, but I felt I did not give it enough justice. Uh, called "The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion," by Jonathan Haidt. And uh, it's a very, 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 very good book. Uh, uh, one to five squawks. How many would you give it? Uh, four. I would give it four squawks. Four squawks. Wow. The thesis of the book that I've mentioned before is that all these differences we see in people from religion and politics and all this stuff, like what they believe, cultural differences, they actually represent deep um, psychological differences that are left over from evolution. And so, like, there's a scientific basis where you can demonstrate these different things. And um, I love it because his concluding thing is, like, how do you reach with people and and the, the wisdom of, of everyone, you know, where it's like conservatives are right because you don't want to be too liberal and libertarians have some things right. You know, like everyone has things right. Everyone's got a piece of the pie. Yeah, everyone's got things right and wrong, and that's what makes them them. And so I thought that that was really cool because we're, you know, it's not as much, oh, well, they're, they're wrong and evil. And he also talks about how hard it is to change people's mind. And... If I may, I'd like to list his kind of, these are the six core axes that people kind of operate on. And they operate on varying degrees. So I'll list those out there. Um, uh, Care, liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And so people have different emphases of those six core things. And that represents the political like groups. So for instance, if you are high emphasis on care that's a temperamental psychological difference and you're more likely to be progressive whereas if you value um fairness as articulated as um equality you're more likely to actually be a conservative kind of this um everyone's got a fair shot you want to level yeah yeah stuff like that and so he talks about how if you frame these issues a certain he, he his another kind of like subthesis of his is that conservatives have an advantage because they formulate their pers- their positions as high on liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity because you know like the flag uh, versus you know like like military authority, veteran culture. And then a loyalty to the country, economic fairness, and of course liberty, you know, is a big conservative tenet. And so he talks about how conservatives can naturally tap into people who are strong in all those categories, where if you're liberal, the way the campaigns are run, they only tap into care. So, you know, the only argument is, no, 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 we care for people. 
And so, because he, he was, he did do some political advisory work. So that's kind of what he advises people on. Well, I mean, for the longest time now, the Democrats have run as the People's Party. Exactly, exactly. And he talks about how it, if you diversify kind of your things, and he talks about how liberals are really bad at respecting people who are high in loyalty, authority, and sanctity, you know, um, and that they just don't understand that. Um, and he gives the example of there was a, um, a modern art exhibit in New York City that he went to, and I like it too because it's a personal story where he's like, I was a liberal, and I had to try and understand these people, and it changed my mind and, like, all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But he gives the example of how there was a modern art exhibit, and the art piece was literally the artist smeared feces on a portrait of the Virgin Mary. And, of of course, some people were really mad about that, you know. That's bold. Especially in the Catholic community. And so he, he uses that to show that, like, a liberal paradigm doesn't account for sanctity. Whereas, like, if a, a religious person with that kind of temperament, um, high emphasis on sanctity, is going to take that into account. It matters what you do to the flag, stuff like that. And, it, I mean, he also has a section about how um, liberals don't, like, cross-pollinate their ideas. So um, uh, he does this psychological study where it's how best you can articulate your opponent's points of view and he found that conservatives are the, like the they're the only group that can explain like how liberals think. So like the test was something along the lines of what would a liberal say about X and they accurately represented the liberal view whereas the liberals didn't. So like so the liberals would be like what explain the conservative position on marriage and the liberals would be like they hate gay people and think they're like immoral, right? But um the conservatives would be able to explain, oh, well, uh, they see um, equality of outcome is more important than equality of opportunity. You know, right. they could actually explain these differences. And so. Well, and that marriage de- like directly correlates with their views and their yeah, the amount of sanctity that they. It, it, exactly. They and so, super interesting book, chock full of studies. I mean, I don't think this is his prime work, but it, the, the work spans a long time. Um, and I thought it was super interesting, and I mentioned it in passing, but I I I think everyone should read it, and I'd kind of like to, I guess, end by asking y'all what what do you think changes your mind? Because often it's it's so slow. I mean, it, this book made me realize we all act like, oh well, let's just argue, and then I'll change your mind. And since everyone operates by that, no one's minds ever get changed, right? Because, I mean, you think about how many debates someone says, wow, I was wrong. I'm going to change my mind and admit I lost. No one does that. And so... Um, even on a professional level, that's why even, you have a moderator. Even on a professional level. And so, but as you encounter ideas and stuff and they slowly, like, work on you and you think about it, you slowly change your mind. And um, Jonathan Haidt makes the case that experiencing people also changes your mind. So he uses the example of he went to India to do parts of his studies, and that made him understand the conservative worldview more because it's like uh, family matters, sanctity matters, um, what you do, kind of like this virtue ideas. These all things matter, and they correlate to like conservative on the psychological tests. 
And so um, he is this example of that knowing people changes your mind. That's excellent. Very, 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 very good stuff. So the book is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. That is H-A-I-D-T. Check it out. Ruger gave it four out of five squawks. I know I'll be reading it. A um, couple questions. Uh, you highlighted a lot of the criticisms of liberalism. Mm-hmm. Are there any, and if so, what are they, uh, in criticisms of conservatism? Oh, um, conservatism. Basically, in his broad, it's his broad criticism to everyone that you're not seeing the other person's point of view fully. So while conservatives were able to explain what the liberals thought about certain issues more, um, they still weren't fully grasping these people primarily have the value of care. So like if you value care above other stuff, it doesn't matter, right? Like, and he and he and he gives the really good example of um, how you have to reframe your paradigm to meet someone's needs. And he uses mm-hmm. the example of a guy where um, his his dad died in the healthcare system, and it turns out it was an aspect of like the government regulation of it. And so this guy does this article in The Guardian, and he's like, look, I know it's counterintuitive, but it'd be more caring if we let this sector of healthcare run like LASIK is run, where LASIK is just free market. You know, the government doesn't uh, get involved in LASIK, and neither does insurance. And so... You're talking LASIK eye surgery. Yeah, LASIK eye surgery. And so um, this guy who started out as a liberal... He was trying to understand. He still had the paradigm of care. And then when he went to explain why he changed his mind to his liberal friends, he framed them as caring. So, like, he shows how, well, if we actually had a completely free market, then we wouldn't need all these insurance people. We only need the insurance people because the government started getting involved. And then my dad would would be alive today because he wouldn't have had to wait for the insurance company, you know. And he goes through this argument, but he contextualizes it in care. So it's essentially the criticism of conservatism is um, that we're not fully appreciating the role of care in our analysis. But he mainly does rail against liberals just because the conservative coalition in modern politics is operating on like five of the six axes. Yeah. So, you know, if you get someone strong in loyalty... And this is just, like, by luck that our politics has been shaped by this way. You know, I mean, politics varies by country to country, but it's just sheer happenstance where if you... There's five axes where if you're strong on, you end up being a conservative or libertarian. Now, that actually kind of leads into the second question I had. When you're talking about the six axes, mm-hmm. um, and they... and Will you remind me what all of them were? It was yeah, sanct- give me sanctity, loyalty. Yeah, so it's care, liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So I think the two main political stereotypes about the parties mm-hmm. are that Republicans, their basis is self-preservation through labor and free markets. The progress, uh, liberals or just the Democratic Party in general is 
societal progression through social betterment. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, like I said, it's a stereotype. Do you think, and since it kind of correlates and aligns almost perfectly with those six axes, do you think that there are values within political stereotypes or stereotypes in general? Yeah, I think it is just because it helps us understand. Like, stereotyping's not all bad. It's just when you believe a stereotype over evidence, then it's bad. Right. Um, but the the problem is, and Haidt recognizes that originally both parties operated on all these. Like, I mean, take take Biden, right? He's a good example. He's like a moderate, pretty centrist Democrat, right? He's been around a while. I think that he would resonate high on all of these, right? Like uh, care, liberty, fairness. I think he loves America. Um, Maybe not authority, but I mean, I'm sure he respects the flag. You know, so Haidt recognizes that traditionally the two parties were so close that there was huge overlap. You know, so if you valued sanctity, you might actually vote Democrat because, you know, everyone's a spectrum on all these. So if if you're high on sanctity and then your second highest one is care, you might end up voting Democrat, right? But uh, he recognizes that everyone has a prime one. And so his argument is that the, pr- the nature of like the progressive movement has moved care to the forefront, to where only people high in care are going to vote for the Democrat now. That's very interesting. Yeah, because cause, yeah, cause everyone's a spectrum on all these, right? Like, it, like if you took the test and you scored high on loyalty, that doesn't mean you don't have care as a factor, right? He just recognizes that these are the six core factors. I think going back to the stereotype question, I mean, obviously it's important to note, and I think you summed it up very well, especially for just being put on the spot with something that is controversial. Stereotyping without recognition and, you know, obviously just overall acknowledgement of evidence yeah is that that makes up the body of dangerous negative stereotypes like specifically within the realm of race white men can't jump asians are bad drivers Mm -hmm. etc um i think that politically speaking it's very valuable especially now where the attention span is as we're seeing just getting shorter and shorter it is kind of a helpful concise bullet point format in which you can differentiate between the two. Um, Then, I mean, even then adding on to the point you just made about there being significant overlap between the two, if you read old writings from John Locke and then you read old writings with Edmund Burke, there Mm. are very similar ideals. Yeah, no, that's there's always been immense overlap because we all have these core things. And um, he... He kind of goes on a tangent that I that's interesting, but I don't I didn't see exactly how it pertains. He goes into a uh, a tangent on like tribalism and how how it's been kind of demonified. Like uh, there's a stigma around tribalism, right? But he's like, look, tribalism builds cities. Tribalism also sacks cities. Right, it's a neutral thing that we're ha- hardwired to gr- to do, and so if you can hardwire into a, a tribalism attitude in a healthy way, that's the best possible thing. But that's the struggle. 
Yeah, that's the struggle, right? And so, like, can we, if you're, because if the two parties were both tribal in a healthy way, they would generate, like, compromises and good bills that show the best qualities of liberalism and conservatism and balance the two and recognize when they need to, you know, and all this stuff. But tribalism goes awry when you say, no, I'm going to block whatever the, the other party does, stuff like that. Yeah, and you're definitely seeing that now. Exactly. So our our tribalism is um, even more skewed. And he talks about how the lack of cross-pollination, like the fact that liberals can't see the conservative worldview is contributing to the tribalism, where we're no longer even in the same tribe um, of America. You know, the... This, and he talks about the real the idea of there's a real America flyover country and stuff. Right. And liberals rail against that idea. You know, like Bill Maher will be oh, like, tears it. yeah, he tears it yeah tears out. It's like well, California is just as American. He's like, well, there's a deeper truth they're trying to get at, and that's and that's the idea that we're our moral matrices. You know, as Hype formulates it are so different that we are in different worlds. And then those in real America align more so with the traditional. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I will say, though, in defense, uh, not even in defense of Mar, but in defense of the criticism of the term real America, I think that in the general sense that it has been used as of late, it is not really going into or even attempting to delve at the maybe just the psychological or political depth that height is referring to. Oh yeah, I mean like it's Fox more Fox News is especially guilty of this. Because yeah, exactly, th- and that's what I love about height is he's. It's so it just makes so much sense, like just at a pragmatic level, like. You can't change people's minds, and that's okay. Like, that's ultimately his conclusion is shouldn't we ought to prefer a world where our solutions are informed by everyone? So, like, if I'm high in liberty and you're high in care and we come together and then we have a solution, that's way better, right? But the problem is I'm trying to convince you of liberty and you're trying to produce me of care, but since we don't even know that we're arguing about different stuff. Yeah, it's a war of priorities. Yeah, so like we're arguing socialized health care and I'm giving you an economic argument and you only care about care. Yeah, so like think of all those who are, you know, suffering right yeah, now. Yeah, we're not even arguing the same thing. And so Hyde's trying to tap into a deeper level of we're operating with different values, which we have from evolution, and that's like okay. When he talks about the inability to fully and effectively change people's minds does he go into religion at all oh yeah yeah um because i mean conversion is when i think of that i think of that that being an effective changing of one's mind yeah and um he talks a lot about um religious people and liberals ironically enough do this same thing where it's like that's why it's called the righteous mind because it's like oh they don't know the truth they don't know how the world ought to be you know this kind of dogmatic um and that's another interesting thing is that like the psychology of religious people and liberals are the same where it's like everyone outside of your tribe not only is not a part of your group but is wrong it should be sought and like yeah and like immoral and stuff like that yeah very interesting
Yeah. Because when I think of current, not even conservatism, but republicanism, there is not, I, I feel as though there is not that, and I could be wrong, I've been wrong many times before, but it doesn't seem like it's as much, or it's as forceful of in relaying the information or the argument. And it's less so about shoving the information, the facts down your throat or forcing you just to subscribe to this, but it's more so kind of uh, aligned with the, the Jewish mentality mm. uh, in terms of conversion, where it's that, you know, if you're brought up in the Jewish faith, if you are a, a Jew, you have very little care whether or not someone joins the Jewish faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't really affect you all that much. You're just trying to live the best life you can, abiding by the traditional laws of morality. And that's where conservatives are in, in, in Hyde's formulation, is yeah. that they're actually the ones that are more liberal in a weird way, that they're like, okay, well, like, you know, they just disagree with people, whereas the liberals are more likely to assume bad intentions. Which I mean, uh, I mean uh, the wh- who's the CEO of Twitter? Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey says the same thing. He says conservative Twitter follows liberal Twitter, but liberal Twitter doesn't follow conservative Twitter. I mean, he talks about how there's this. It's the, the you know there's something going on where they don't want to hear other points of view Maybe. because it taps into religious ideas. Yeah. Well, and just a moral center. Yeah, 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 yeah. The moral matrix is very, very, uh, very similar. Yeah, it's definitely Judeo-Christian aligned. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's no surprise, just knowing our, you know, our country's founding and Edmund Burke's principles. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. I am very uh, interested in reading this. Um, how did you discover Jonathan Haidt? Um. Honestly, on YouTube, he gave a talk at Intelligence Squared, which they do UK content. Very good. And the first speech I saw him do, uh, he was talking about the kind of this boomer idea of everyone, you know, everyone gets a trophy, participation medals. And he talks about how as a professor, there was a clear shift in like the quality of students and that that's what got him kind of onto this research is he's a, he's a professor at the university of virginia and he said that there was a clear marker shift like generationally where suddenly my students could not tolerate hearing things they disagreed with and so that actually was kind of the first domino where he's like what's going on and so he dug deeper and deeper and he talks about the psychology of how you need things to challenge you to grow. And so if nothing challenges you, you're not growing, actually. Which is a real, like, like that's why I said, like, it's a boomer idea. Yeah. Where, you know, kids need to toughen up and <laughs> do more. But, like, he goes through the psychology and he's like, this is actually true, though. Like, you need to, uh, we need, you know, when you're told your ho- whole life you're a winner and you're unique and stuff, um it actually harms you. And so I thought that was really interesting that like as a professor, a psychology professor, 
he noticed that there was a shift where my students can no longer hear things they disagree with. Well, and there's a large group that criticizes and labels that generation as the Mr. Rogers generation. Mm. Those being brought up, watching Mr. Rogers, every time he made an appearance on television, hearing the simple fact that you matter, that you're unique, you're a snowflake, you're individual, Mm. you're created just the way you are. And I'm not arguing saying that's wrong, but... It's clearly both though, right? Like, yeah, we're unique, but also like, are we that unique? You know, like you need to balance those things and there's there's too much one way. You're an eventual, you're like an individual product in a larger working mechanism. You're a winner and a loser. Everyone is a winner and loser. (laughs) Perpetually on multiple levels, everyone is winning and losing. And that's... Except Booker. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) true. But, um... And so that's kind of where I found him. His lectures are amazing. I recommend his content. Him and Jordan Peterson do a lot of collaboration, especially academic work. Um, Well, yeah, you and I have been talking about Marxism and the mm -hmm. influences that it's very evident. He talks about that. To be pouring in. Does he really? Yeah, he mainly talks about how there's a liberal bias where – in the 80s, he started recognizing that um, a lot of psycho- psychological studies were trying to explain why conservatives were wrong. Um, and so he started having these, like, it's kind of fun, these, like, clandestine meetings with, like, faculty close to him, and they started, like, railing against it where he was, like, uh, he talks about how he goes to an international uh, psychology conference, right, in uh, Buenos Aires, and the people are making jokes, like, against Bush, like, talking about how dumb he is. Or Walker or... Did you say... This this would have been George W., so this was later. Okay. Um, You know, but he talks about how, like, at academic forums and symposiums, uh, these professors are going up and saying, like, political jokes. Like, did you see how stupid George Bush is? Well, but you see that today with Trump. Exactly. But he, he talks about how he just couldn't understand, like, the role of an academic and also belittling half the population, you know, type thing. Yeah. And so... Especially him, when you're doing what you're supposed to be there. Yeah. To and, do, and, right? him, and so that's when him and his small group... Um, started studying more and recognizing these different axes. And he talks about how uh, there's these other traits that he goes into in a different book, but one of them is called trait openness, which means um, that's one of those kind of like where if you score high in trait openness means you're open to things, so you're more likely to be liberal, you know, at a psychological level. Mm-hmm. level. But that also means you're more likely to be a professor, because you're more likely to take in stuff and do do stuff like that. Well, and Peterson outlines why Marxism and its core, exactly core principles, there, there's overlap. Yeah, like well, Marxists care. Exactly, you know, like stuff it, like that. intellectuals are already more predisposed to sympathizing with that set of ideals. Yes, exactly. So that that's very fascinating in and of itself. I was listening to Gad Sad. Mm. I don't even know if I mentioned, I remember talking to you about the Palestinian study on IDF soldiers, but um, what I did not mention was that I believe this was in Gad Sad's class that he was teaching. 
and he was asked by one of the students who supposedly was speaking on behalf of many, and the student asked him, would you consider asking my gender orientation each day of the week that I'm here in class? Like for each student, like asking them what they identify as on a certain day. And he said that he was just completely perplexed by that. And at that moment, he kind of woke up yeah, and acknowledged this. I think you, you put it as this way, this kind of echo chamber of confirmation bias as well as just I, I, yeah, I guess just a large echo chamber of support and confirmation bias. I'll just leave it at that. Where the me, 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 the me, 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 me. Yeah, it's all it's all about me. My emotional needs surpass that of objective science and of just objectivity in the workplace, yeah. learning place, wherever. And and the, the crazy part is me, 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 me. Eventually becomes like no one, no one, no one. Right. So like right. if you focus on yourself, like. I can't hear ideas I don't like because I it's disagree paradoxical. with them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, it, but it's the same if you went too far to the right, right? So like if if I make it like, oh, you're white, you, 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 I eventually start excluding people too. Yeah, and, yeah, and Peterson also talks about the problem with the current extremist nature of the left but also very, I think, very accurately outlines what, you know, extremism on the conservative end of the spectrum looks like. And it gets dark pretty quick in the sense that there is no sense of individualism, Mm -hmm. which I don't want that. No one wants that. Um, But on top of which, the needs of government mainly yeah. just nationalism are put at the forefront before yeah. anything else and the, the individualist road goes both ways right like well yeah you get to marxism and then you get to it, one of the points i did want to bring up and highlight was that you said and i've not been able to stop thinking about it is that marxism is the new religion mm, yes i just because if you look at how many schools of marxist thought there are it's like denominations you go through the literature and you read, you prov- and it's a worldview in the sense that it's like economics, sociology, psychology. You have Marxist history, even morality. Mor- yeah, morality, Marxist philosophy. You know, uh, like power dynamics and stuff like that. You construct a worldview on it, and then I and I can never invalidate it, right? Like, I mean, I I've mentioned this, but on the podcast before where like i'll get out the communist manifesto and be like look all his predictions in the end were wrong like look how look how much wealthier everyone is even the poorest among us are like unfathomably wealthy and they'll be like oh no he's talking about the on a deeper level like not just absolute wealth inequality but relative you know and like all this stuff and moral relativism or no, just I'm. T- I was just talking about the the predictions at the end about how oh, about the state of capitalism. And yeah, exactly, okay. and how they were wrong, and like, e- and even though they're wrong, they're like, oh no, there's this deeper symbolic meaning to what Marx is saying, and honestly, think it's just people want to be edgy. 
I think it's he, it's cool to be outside the norm, and the irony is everyone's outside the norm. Hey, we're in this weird place where it's like countercultural to be pretty normal. That's I feel like that's pretty accurate. Yeah. So, because I mean, yeah, you, and you definitely see that with the youth embracing MAGA. Yeah. That's that's a kind of a, a standing up to the man. And no, the man, totally. And it's, the, man, it's, the man in their eyes is the liberal elite trying to suppress freedom of speech. Exactly. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that, like, uh, Gen Z is super conservative, right? I mean, um, the pendulum has to swing the other way. And the problem is the progressives think they're on the side of progress. But when, you're, when your, like, worldview is I'm on the side of progress, how do you discern when you're not? Like, and that, this, this is a healthy exercise for everyone. If, like, you're trying to change your mind or you're thinking out a proposition, inverse it and then think, what would I have to see to believe that, to believe the inverse? So it's like a thought experiment. You inverse the proposition and then see what evidence would change your mind back to your position. And the, the problem is when I, act, when I ask Marxists, like, what would I have to show you to either prove capitalism is good or Marxism is wrong. Two sides of the same coin, right? Same proposition. Like, what can I show you? Like, tell me my burden of proof. And there isn't one. Because there, because you, and so that's how you know, like, okay, well, you actually haven't done, like, like deep reflection, right? Like, like, like you can ask him, if I show you every communist country ever, like, sucks and it's really bad. Is that? We can't say sucks on the air. <laughs> is that a, is that a, is that like do I meet your burden of proof? And they're like, no. Well, and I was like, okay. Well, what can I show you that would make you say, wow, capitalism is good? And there's just no one is thinking what their burden of proof is. Everyone is just thinking for the sake of thinking. You think yourself into Marxism, and then you build your world on Marxism, right? Yeah, I think that definitely supports the idea that it is religious in a sense. Yeah, one, because once you get so far into it, it is your worldview, and it's essentially asking, like when you a- when you ask, "What would I have to show you to get you to stop believing this?" Well, I mean, if you ask that to a Christian or a, a, a Muslim, yeah, what are they going to say? Nothing. My yeah. faith is unshakable. And it's and it's abstract in the sense of like there isn't a Marxist society, right? Because they keep collapsing, ironically enough. So you're describing you're describing this like weird utopian paradise, just like Christians describe heaven and theology, and uh, well, and you have this inherited sin, yeah. and we have the inherited sin of colonialism. You know, our ancestors did bad things. You know, oh, you have the sin of Adam. You need to redeem yourself. How do you redeem yourself? There's like a salvation process where you get woke. It's the same thing. Yeah, just by giving back to everyone, anyone and everyone. Yeah, you, you hold these certain beliefs as, and then you pay like penance and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's the same. Yeah, and there's that old communist joke where during Stalin's reign, and I might have even said it on the show, so if I have, excuse me for repeating myself, but where one of the workers in, I think, a steel mill says, well, you know how it is. They they pretend to feed us. We pretend to work. And I think that right there just kind of encapsulates the danger of this mindset. I mean, not to mention the millions that died at the hand of Stalin's mm-hmm. regime and his reign. But beyond Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao. Yeah. It Fid- always Fidel is Fidel Castro. Who Bernie, I, I still can't get over Bernie's... Uh, 
I wouldn't call it. It was not an endorsement, but it was some showing some support. Yeah, to, veiled, veiled defense, I guess. Yeah, to some of Castro's efforts and results in the um, education sector more than others, I think. Uh, it, I'm I'm taking modern Middle East right now, and we're studying. Well, we just wrapped up World War Two, but uh, we started off with post World War One, and we're talking about secularization efforts. Mainly, mm. uh, the two countries that are most known for this are Turkey and Iran. Uh, Iran had Shah uh, Shah, I think Reja Pahlavi, that was his name, uh, and then Turkey had Ataturk. Uh, mm-hmm. His name was uh, Mustafa Kemal. Uh, and the name Ataturk means father of the Turks. So that they still revere him to this day and hold him in the highest of regards. But in the secularization efforts, there's not as much economic reform, but you look at the social reforms, uh, and they align very similar with what Stalin did. Mm. Um, but, I mean, and the thing is, Kemal, Ataturk, in Turkey... Uh, banned religious schools, banned religious uh, wear, like the fez, um, which was big at the time. He banned uh, he banned worship in shrines and uh, tombs, and also just highlighted that this has no place in our efforts to, you know, in our efforts of westernization, and it's a detriment to society. And as a result, you did see a pretty big divide of the people, which ended up, you know, taking over and consuming Turkey for the foreseeable future uh, into and after World War II. And I mean, they're just, they're drastic reforms. And then you look at what Reza Shah did in Iran, and his priority was protecting the economic field, or the, you know, the, sorry, not economic fields, um, well, kind of, preserving the economy by protecting Iran's oil fields. And in doing so, the reforms revolved around, um, you know, boosting education and building up a state identity. Uh, yes. And he took and he took much of that from uh, Kemal Ataturk, but his revolved more so around nationalism, and there was much less of a cultural divide within Iran. And there was, and he did not do the drastic reforms like banning religious practices and institutions. Um, but crew is responsible for creating secular education programs as well as, you know, just a more clean-cut, peaceful means of separating church from state and governing policy. Yeah. And if you ask me, um, while his results did not prove to be as effective in what he had originally set out to do, because uh, he also wanted to free Iran from the... Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like the AIPOC, which was the, uh, I'm not even going to try and say it, but it was a major oil company at the time that it, that its royal family had been kind of controlling the ongoings in the government. But his effect did not cause nearly the cultural divide that Kamal's did, and it was probably half of the extent, you know, of being drastic as Kamal's. So I th- and either way, I think they both tie in, but... Um, Mustafa's is more so aligned in my book with, you know, the communist practices and Stalin's reign. And I think that you can even compare Reza Shah Hmm. and his practices to the separation of church and state and more so what's been going on recently in the United States 
in secularization efforts. Yeah. Do, do Sorry, you, I, I didn't mean to go on it. No, you're good. It just, you mentioned it and it made me think of this. I have a, I, I have a quote in front of me that was like, a, it was like Stalin wrote, wrote this like law. So he wrote this about how education should work. He said, um, a Soviet teacher must be guided by the principle of the party spirit of science. He's obliged not only to be an unbeliever, but also to be an active propagandist of godlessness among other people, to be the bearer of ideas of militant atheism. Skillfully, calmly, tactfully, and persistently, the Soviet teacher must expose and overcome religious prejudices in the course of his activity in, in school and out of school every single day. Do you think that overall abandonment of religion, I mean, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but do you think that there is any good to abandoning religion? And that and that's a very hard, that's a very broad question. Well, yes, it's certainly for science, right? And right. I fundamentally think science and religion are dealing with two separate things, but the metaphysical when, and the physical. Yeah, so when I say si it's a good job for science to reject religion, what I'm saying is it's a good job for science not to assume, right? That's actually what I'm saying. Is science especially needs to say, well, how can we prove this and hammer it out and deal specifically with the world? But w some assumptions are needed. For instance, like, like murder is wrong. Like, certain things are good, certain things are bad. A society needs that as a base thing. Because what we're realizing now with postmodernism is, like, why? Why is life good? You know, you, you eventually hit this, this kind of point where nothing means anything and you don't state, know. You reach a state of boredom. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the, the crazy part is... Um, it all kind of started with the the Reformation. And if you think about it, it's this epistemological question of who do I believe for truth, right? So for like the longest time, specifically just talking about the West here, it was the Catholic Church, right? And then the Reformers were like, no, trust the Bible. And then, wait, you can't trust the Bible, trust the science. And then eventually it became... No, you can't trust that. Trust, like, the nation and then the state and then the self. And now we're fully, like, hitting rock bottom where it's like, what if I can't even t uh, trust myself? Yeah, we're seeing the furthest reaches of humanism. Yes, exactly, ultimately. exactly. Uh, and, I mean, there's a great uh, Voltaire quote that says, if God were not real, it would be necessary to invent him. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree with that because, I mean, you're, you, take, you take countries like Russia um, during, you know, Stalin. And I hate that we're talking about Stalin so much, but, it, I mean, <laughs> he's a very interesting figure yeah. in history. But you take him and you take Mussolini, and they both reject teachings of church mm -hmm. and the idea of the metaphysical. But what do they do with their sense of nationalism or, you know, even... You know, yeah. just the figure that, that Stalin and Mussolini were. They create gods. Exactly. So it really depends on... We all have that god home. What, yeah, what, well, what is your god, right? Yeah. Very interesting and that, stuff. And that, that gets in kind of like the deeper nature of like what idolatry is, right? And, I mean, 
because we all have, I mean, even like I just mentioned, like prime values. So we all are perpetually operating by some value. We don't have a choice, right? To not to not have a value is to like die. That's what suicide is, is you have no values left anywhere in anything. Nowhere to go. Not in, inside yourself, outside yourself, no more values. So as soon as you value something, that's your God. So really it gets into a question of like, what do you value most? And then you structure your world around what you value most. Because normally I think when people hear idolatry, I mean, obviously you think of a golden calf, mm-hmm. right? Or something of that nature, but you think of something replacing God, but really it's just a matter of what your God is. Yeah, and I mean, at the risk of sounding like a boomer, like, I mean, if you... Uh, th- I mean, this whole show is kind <laughs> of boomer central. Um, if, if, you valued, if you only value pleasure, your life is going to suck. It's going to suck bad. Because you won't have deeper stuff. So, I mean, ideally, this is kind of where, I mean, I don't want to get theological, but ideally we value everything equally, and that's like God. Because God is everywhere and everything in creation, right? So if if you can truly value, if I can truly value myself, if I can value you, and if I can perfectly value everything around me and what I'm doing, that's God, right? And so we're constantly trying to discern these deeper values and stuff like that. Uh, and until evolution comes up with, or science in general, comes up with an answer to if this is order as a result of chaos, mm-hmm. where did morality spawn from? Yeah, and that's that's his first chapter, actually. The origins of morality. Yeah, and I mean, as a yeah, it's where does morality come from? And he basically says, I don't know, but there's something innate. Like when you test babies, they recognize harm and injustice. Oh, you mentioned this to me that yeah. when you see yeah. babies can, can like will stop you from like hitting other people. Like we're talking like six months old. They and if you're hitting them they'll reach out to defend themselves yeah they, they, there's these basic tenets of justice and so kind of his intro is like why are we reasoning these elaborate ethical world theories of how the world works when like we have these innate experiences like uh, i mean just to give you a brief example like why would i build my world on marxism when i know there's other stuff than power right like i mean i that's like one side of like the diamond of life you know some some relationships are power dynamics but some are functional some are like utilitarianism right and then some are like love so there's we know if you just took the average person you they they would be able to explain this you know like i mean a boss employee relationship sometimes is just a power dynamic right sure but marx builds reality upon that fact right and so that's what Marxists do is they view everything through power. And then they, what do you do with that? you got to view history through power. So then you got to divide everyone into groups and decide who had power over whom for when and why and what everyone did wrong, and that's where you get all this stuff. But, like, there's these innate things where it's like we all recognize you shouldn't unjustly harm people, you shouldn't do stuff like that. I mean, there's other stuff, too, where it's like... Um, if you're about to give a baby a toy and then you take it away, they recognize that. 
So like I mean yeah. I mean it's this thing where like justice is pretty pretty innate. So I don't know why we're all trying to reason about it and stuff. I well, mean, you just hypothesize theories that range from being, you know, relatively plausible to just outlandish. Yeah. And while I think the most notable and most recent one that comes to mind is the simulation theory. Yeah. While that, why that is, or it does offer, I guess a, a satisfying explanation to the innate drives as well as the chaotic and the ordered phenomena in the universe and on, I mean, obviously including what happens here. It just seems as though it's so far removed from the basic idea of a metaphysical deity of a creator. And and G.K. Chesterton talks about how if you're insane, you have a simple flat worldview. And I'll give you I'll give you the example he uses. If I tell you the government is secretly spying on me, every every single thing you tell me, I will cram into that worldview. So like you're like, but Ruger, like your webcam light isn't on. I'll be like, oh, they hacked my light so that they can monitor. My, you know, like if I'm truly insane, no matter what you say, like I'll be like, oh, well, they're waiting for me around the corner. You know, there's nothing you can do that. But that's literally what some people do with their, like, ideologies, right? right. And then you, like, make, you make a website and call it Infowars.com. <laughs> right? I mean, people, all people do it, but, I mean, Marxists do it too, right? Where nothing I can show you changes your mind because it's, it's, you have this flat view. I mean, fundamental Christians do the same thing with the Bible, uh, you know, fundamental and, reje- and rejection of science as well. Yeah, rejection of science. Like, every, everyone does that, but... It's where you're forsaking reality for yourself at like a fundamental level. It's, it's like how I see it, where you won't even accept someone else's opinion because you have a worldview, right? I mean, another example is like what we mentioned earthy, earlier, where we're having a debate about healthcare and I just keep spitting economic data at you, right? Like, I'm not fully appreciating your concerns if your concerns are care. So ideally, we value everything. So like an ideal person operates like on all six of the axes I just mentioned earlier. Yeah. Fully appreciates and maximizes all six of those perpetually. When developing a worldview. Exactly. So when you give me a decision, I discern like the best way along those six deals and different things like that. But we all recognize that's impossible. So his argument is just like listen more and stuff like that. <laughs> Which and, is just, and just acknowledge that you will be, dis- regardless of what position you cultivate, you will be lacking in one or more of those axes. Yes, exactly. Ex- which, I mean, I feel like if you set someone in a down uh, out in the, and you're not in an argument and you're like, okay, well, you recognize that like there's differences and there's gaps probably in our knowledge like mutually and they're like yeah and so but people don't conduct themselves like that very true which is annoying (laughs) yeah i i gotta say having not read much of height's work and none of the book i'm already very (laughs) you're on board i'm on i'm on board (laughs) for the most part man (laughs) that's funny yeah i mean unless he tells me that uh well, I don't even know. I, I mean, like, if he if he mentioned Squatch in there, I'd probably <laughs> I'd probably protest. But um, 
Well, look, I we have about four minutes left, and I know you got to get out of here right at six because you got a class. Thank you again for mm-hmm. the Ruger report, and uh, thanks for being a new Squawk member, man. I think I think this went over well. I think it'll continue to go over well. Um, you know, just as long as you get your alcohol problem <laughs> taken care of. It's a bad joke. Um, I'll just I'll just read this headline, and maybe we can pick up next week, but. This comes from OuterPlaces.com, which is a great source for uh, new scientific and uh, technological developments. Definitely check out OuterPlaces.com. The headline reads, Top Secret California Space Startup Spin Launch Receives Additional $35 Million for Mysterious High-Speed Vehicle. Mm. The plot thickens. The plot thickens, as it tends to do in the age of information. Um, another headline I'll read, Einstein was right. Scientists spot white dwarf star dragging space-time around like a security blanket. Have you, have you seen Interstellar? I have seen Interstellar. How many times? I've seen it a billion times. It's one of the few movies where can I can consistently rewatch it. Murph. Murph. <laughs> uh, you know, I will never forget. There, there are very few moments in film just growing up where I'm in the theater and I'm watching a movie and I see a scene that is from that moment on just forever ingrained in my yeah. mind and the visuals mm. when they are first fl- flying by the black hole the wormhole just absolutely visually, stunning oh. and, and I I don't know about you but I was big dumb going into the movie like I could not figure out the plot and it because the commercials if you watch them you have at least I couldn't. I had no idea where they were going with it. Um, I thought it was another just space movie like Gravity. Yeah. Gravity had come out right before that, actually. So yeah. I thought, oh, Gra- another. But Gravity's trash. Yeah, Gravity's trash and, you know, like the the Martian and stuff. So I was blown away. Yeah. It, unlike any other space movie I've seen. Oh, yeah. And it gets so much hate, too. By Pe- whom? A lot of people. A lot of people say By it's one culture. of Nolan's weakest films. Maybe they should read more. Yeah, I'm. I am very excited for Tenet. Have you seen the trailer for that? I have not. That's what you need to do after class. Okay. Watch that trailer. It's like Christopher Nolan's time travel film. Yeah. It's, uh, time. What we've all been waiting for. Exactly. It's going to be great. Why is time travel coming back into film as as much as it is? I don't know. I I'm a firm believer we will never time travel. No, I am as well. Despite that picture of a guy using a cell phone at the Kennedy rally. <laughs> Many questions. Yeah. Uh, Ruger, great report. Looking forward to uh, next Thursdays. Uh, as always, great squawking with you. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. Be sure to check out squawkradio.org. There's going to be some great content on there, more so than there already is. Also, check out Big Squawk with the at sign before the B. You know how Twitter and social media work. Uh, at Big Squawk on Twitter as well as at Squawk Radio on Instagram Um, you know what actually I think today we're going to wrap up with the wise words of Edmund Burke and those are no power so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear this is Andrew Biggers signing off keep on squawking We'll, uh, we'll be squawking with you next week